Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editors at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Triumph's revamped Tiger 900 lineup looks like a high-end, highly capable ADV-styled motorcycle. Senior editor Nick DeSena recently visited Malaga, Spain to ride the rally and the GT Pro versions. Nick gives us his thoughts on what has changed with the new Tiger and a comparison between the two. In our second segment this week, TJ Adams chats with Aussie motorcycle racer Taylor Ralph. Taylor was recently selected to enter the inaugural FIM Women's Motorcycling World Championship that is starting this year. Taylor talks about the physical and the financial challenges and the motivation that has brought her to competing at the very top of her sport. Here's a little known fact. TJ's son, Reed went to high school in Brisbane with Taylor. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends and Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. So this is two out of three of the now three bike lineup for Triumph's middleweight Tiger 900 adventure platform. And this year is sort of a, a year of refinement, we'll call it. Uh, the The list of changes is not particularly long, but it is pretty important when you really start boiling things down and look at where this platform has come from. And to highlight a bit of the history, the Tiger 900 series came to us back in 2020 or for model year 2020, so about four years ago at this point, give or take, depending on how you want to measure the model years and when we actually rode the things. But at any rate, when they launched, uh, they launched with a, we'll call it an, an extremely fleshed out model range that really hit sort of every nook and cranny of the ADV uh, going from the off-road spectrum to the the sport touring spectrum of ADV uh, motorcycles. And they've whittled those offerings down for 2024 down to three models. And those three models include the GT, which stands for Grand Touring. You have GT Pro, which is the up-spec version of that. And the Rally Pro, uh, again, uh, the names are indicative of their purpose. So GT, that is the more sport touring uh, facet of the Tiger 900 range. And then Rally Pro is obviously the more off-road oriented of the range. And there are some significant differences between them. So for the GT Pros, they use cast aluminum wheels and 19-inch front wheels specifically. Also different suspension setup, a bit lower because... They're not really geared for going off-road per se, so they don't necessarily need long travel suspension. There's a handful of other little tweaks between them that really help them aim for their true purpose and achieve that goal. So on the sport touring side, like we mentioned before, the GT and GT Pro, they're handling those duties. And then on the off-road side, we have the Rally Pro, which is equipped with a 21-inch front wheel. It also uses wire spoke wheels. Uh, those are tubeless, by the way. Uh, so they're cross-spoked uh, for BMW fans out there that might be more familiar with that nomenclature. It also uses a Showa fully adjustable suspension, long travel. I might add you're dealing with something like a little bit over nine inches of travel at each end. 
Uh, if I have my spec sheet correctly, it's uh, something like 9.4 in the front and like 9.1 in the rear. Um, so not the longest travel in the class, but absolutely not the shortest. Uh, the longest travel goes to uh, the brands that really, really scrubs dirt under their fingernails, and that's going to be KTM. Uh, that said, there are a handful of other changes between them. Um, their electronics are tuned for each purpose and, you know, things of that nature. But this update covers a lot of ground between each motorcycle. To that end, we're seeing a 13% boost in peak power uh, from the 888cc inline triple engine. That is that T-plane crank uh, uh, engine that was released back in 2020 huge huge update over the tiger 800 moving into the 900 really just changed that engine fundamentally it gave it a, a really unique uh, personality and set of characteristics um and they did that in a handful of ways kind of the usual uh engineering tricks from triumph where you know they've taken a look at the heads uh intake trumpets uh you know cylinders, intake valves, you know, new piston, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and teased out 13% additional power over the original. Um, now it's also gained a new TFT display for the, when I say it's, I mean the entire Tiger 900 lineup, the entire family, uh, new TFT display that's derived from the uh, Tiger 1200 unit, um, much clearer to read, much easier to navigate and overall it just has a much a much more intuitive ui which is one of the few complaints that i've had about the prior gen uh tiger 900 platform and it also uh the street triple uses the same user interface so yeah the what's on the 900 is is much easier to read than the prior gen uh, which is seen on a couple different models throughout the the Triumph family. Um, now, the last change, the electronics are updated. Uh, on that end, they've optimized uh, corner and ABS and, uh, or said to optimize it with a, a new uh, ABS unit. But more importantly, the Tiger 900 range now features linked braking. Um, so what we mean by that is if you activate the, the front brake, it will automatically use a, a determined amount of, of rear brake application, depending on your speed and pitch and things like that. It uses the IMU to sense uh, an appropriate amount of, of rear brake input right there. And for those that are curious and those that remember, probably I would say the early Yamaha YZFR1 system that used linked brakes, uh, this one actually works. So it does not get in the way or produce any sort of aberrant behavior. It's actually pretty uh, pretty imperceptible unless you just absolutely start hammering, you know, the brakes into a corner, whether you're on the GT or the, the Rally Pro. And um, yeah, I mean, the only way you can really suss it out is if you you're really cooking into a corner and, and drop the anchor and then you can kind of kind of feel the rear end you know as if you were the one that was applying a bit of that rear brake and and uh 
you know, getting a little bit of squirm out of it as you would naturally. So, you know, it doesn't doesn't really feel strange at all. Yeah, I noticed that they they come with uh, Brembo brakes. Are they both the same on the GT and the Rally Pro? Yeah, yeah. So we're dealing with some pretty high spec stuff here: Stylomic calipers, radial master cylinders. Um, honestly, you'd find any of this stuff on 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 any of their their road bikes. I mean, this is this is the kind of equipment that would more typically be seen spinning laps at a racetrack. So in terms of braking power, that sort of codifies it as being a pretty potent stuff. And how that translates on these, uh, you know, ADV bikes is, is, well, as you'd expect, the feel is there. The power is more than plenty. Uh, that said, the there, there should be a big tip of the hat towards the off-road ABS setting. Uh, it's something that I really enjoy unless you were to start, you know, doing some kind of uh, loose, rocky downhill descents. But um, yeah, overall, I'm I'm pretty stoked with the braking system that they have on both bikes. And again, that's one of those another another little kind of luxury touch uh, Triumph goes for with with its models where they they spring for some pretty good stuff. Because if you look at the ADV, you know, uh, spectrum from all the manufacturers you know some manufacturers go for axial master cylinders cheaper components etc cetera, etc cetera, which may not be a detriment off-road especially you know due to a low grip situation that can actually help in certain circumstances but you know on the street it's not the best whereas triumph just said no we're going for the top spec stuff and uh yeah that'll keep everyone happy and in the end, that's what it did. So yeah, moving on. So with the motor, presumably there are different electronic modes on there. Um, are they different between the Rally Pro and the uh, GT? Yeah. So to be clear, we rode the bikes in Malaga, Spain, uh, or outside Malaga, Spain, rather, and took to the the highlands and rode some street stuff and then also did some off-roading. Uh, now, out of that that three bike range, we were only given access to the GT Pro and Rally Pro. Um, so we'll go ahead and and start, you know, uh, by talking broadly about the different ride modes between them. You're going to have a standard set, you know, your rain, road, sport, and off-road. Whether you're talking the GT, GT Pro, or Rally Pro, those are going to be the standard modes that you'll find on all of the Tiger 900s. The Rally Pro takes an additional step forward and goes with Off-Road Pro. And what that does is disable TC, traction control, and ABS in one fell swoop. And the reason it can do that is because it is a more hardcore off-road motorcycle that is really geared towards splitting the difference between its time on the street and off-road. Now, the GT Pro and its off-road setting disables ABS in the rear, so you can stab the rear brake and slide around as you please, and it switches to an off-road ABS setting for the front ABS, uh, it, which is dramatically less intrusive than, say, what any of the street modes would be in a low-grip situation. Of course, you have your uh, sport mode, which is uh, fairly on the nose with its naming convention, gives a very sporty um, uh, throttle response in conjunction with, you know, lesser 
rider aids and intervention. Uh, you know, pretty pretty good leeway there. You have road, which is um, you know a bit more tame, and then rain is kind of obvious on that one. Uh, so those are the the throttle maps and riding modes between all of them. Kind of the takeaway here is that regardless of what mode you're in, uh, since they are this you know they are essentially the same between each bike. Um, you know, the, the ride-by-wire throttle is pretty spot on. They've done a really good job in calibrating uh, their throttle response over the past few years and just just made it, you know, made it a very clean, unsnatchy sort of affair. And, uh, you know, I think from here, we can start talking about the actual engine characteristics. Presumably, the engine is pretty smooth. I mean, it's, uh, it's going to be balanced and... Uh... Yeah, so the 888cc T-plane uh, inline triple, um, you know, T-plane actually refers to its firing order, um, and much like you'll hear that with Yamaha's cross-plane, uh, you know, YZF-R1 engines or its uh, cross-plane concept MT-07 engines, the T-plane refers to its its uneven firing order, which is something that that engineers really dove into to help it help it achieve grip off-road because you know different firing orders can produce different characteristics and behaviors um not only just for the engine and the riding experience but also how how that transfers to the rear wheel and how the engine creates and negotiates grip um so an uneven firing order here uh, if i if i believe my my notes correctly it fires in a one, three, two pattern. So that means it fires the first cylinder, then the third, then the second cylinder. Um, at any rate, moving on into that, you know, moving away from the nerd stuff, what what the the T-plane engine does really well is is truly combine that low-end torque and mid-range grunt aspect that you see in in twin cylinder engines whether it's a v-twin or a parallel twin and then also capture that that very very famous kind of uh high revving inline inline three nature that triumph has has built its bones on with respect to its its modern sport bikes um and 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 the thing is here i i feel that the the Tiger 900's power plant is a little bit more twin than triple. Um, what I mean by that is the the traditional street bike engines, you know, whether we're talking about the street triple or the speed triple, um, you know, or the Daytonas, they do have they they do have good torque. They have lots of mid-range and then boatloads of top end. Uh, as far as the torquiness of a twin, no, not necessarily. That said, your typical twin, all things being equal, is probably not going to have the same top end as a triple. This engine truly splits the difference between that because at at low RPM, this thing just has a super velvety bottom end that feeds into incredible mid-range power. And for an off-road bike, that's really important because that's going to be helping you in low-speed situations. It's going to help you over technical spots give you that grunt to pop over things, get through rocky conditions, you know, areas where you might um, have to slow down, stumble, think about where you're going. 
it's really going to be beneficial at those low speeds. And then as you carry on through picking up the pace, then you still got plenty of gumption up top. And with all of those changes that I mentioned earlier, so uh, the tweaks to the, the cylinder head, um, larger inlet ports, uh, new camshaft, new intake trumpets, less restrictive uh, exhaust system, all that adds up to basically 13 more horsepower and I think plus two on the torque. So we're looking at 106.5 horsepower and 66 foot, 66 foot pounds of torque. Um, so that that does bring us a lot closer to the competition. Uh, certainly above, you know, your Aprilia R Touareg 660s, your Yamaha uh, Tenere 700s. It really puts it up to snuff with what's coming from KTM. And that was sort of the goal here is just is just get a little bit more parity with the competition. Now, in comparison to the older engine, the the first gen Tiger 900 power plant, despite being the same displacement, kind of signed off around 75, 7600 RPM. And the big gains here, although there is a sniff more kind of mid-range power based on the dyno charts that they showed us, the the main portion of that that power gain is going to be up top. So really between 7,500 and then all the way through to the red line, the new engine that we rode just pulls all the way through. So how that translates in either bike, when you're riding the GT Pro, you know, we were in the canyons having some good fun. That torque allows you to just kind of settle into a gear depending on how twisty the road is and really just use the torque to get out of any situation that you could think of. Likewise, if you're on a rally pro, as I mentioned before, having that good low end grunt is going to help you just pick up the pace in the in in low grip situations, dig in to things, steer with the rear and do it in a very controlled and tractable manner because that that power delivery isn't is very linear in how it comes through. You have a good throttle connection, so it's all pretty manageable. Um, and then you know when you start wicking it up you know, going back to the GT Pro for a second, you're on the, the highway, something like that. You still have plenty of, you know, uh, freeway pace. It doesn't feel like this low geared sort of um, off-road biased beast. It's, it's a completely tour ready engine. So you are getting the best of not just both worlds, but kind of all worlds in that sense. Um, you know, what What this update really shines through to me is taking that extra step and, and making a good engine even better. And, you know, that's kind of a, a little bit of a trick that Triumph tends to pull. I mean, we've seen it with these three triples. They've netted some extra power to that. The speed triple netted a little bit of extra power out of that. Even the, the Bonneville ranges um, with the, uh, the parallel twin engines, you know, that the what is it the high output and the high torque engine i mean over the years they've been able to extract just a little bit more something something out of those as they've been updated incrementally now kind of the main thing that comes through is when the tiger 900 was first released i would say that this new engine was it was smooth you know but not typically smooth for triumph it had a little bit more vibiness in the mix and some of that could be attributed to the fact that it was a bit more 
twin-esque in character when you're down low. This one has really taken that extra step in refinement and eliminated a lot of that. Now, some of that is due to adding rubber damping throughout the touch points. Um, you know, the handlebars are rubber damped. The seat has a, a different shape. It's a bit flatter, uses some different foam. But overall, I would say that these internal updates along with, you know, the tuning updates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, have really allowed the, the T-plane crank to retain that, that snarling low end and kind of feel just as naughty and nasty as it did before. And I mean that in a very positive way. While also adding another layer of refinement, which Triumph has, has, has executed extremely well with respect to its street bikes. I mean, those things are dead smooth. They're, they're excellent at this point. Um, you know, with all those other internal updates, they've increased the valve, valve service intervals to 18,000 miles and also increased the claimed fuel economy by 9%. Wow. So okay. those are two facts that translate to, you know, more money, more money in your wallet, whether you're talking about uh, service time at the dealer or just, you know, not stopping at the pump as often. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're dealing with bikes like this that are going to be chowing down miles, that's an important figure to, you know, keep in your back pocket. Because look, you know, the GT Pro, although it's the touring oriented bunch, then you'd think, oh, well, that one's going to be, you know, doing the most mileage. The Rally Pro is no slouch in that camp either. And as we know, if you're going to ride ADV, you're going to cover a lot of terrain. So you may not be able to, get to dealers uh, as often as you think. I don't know if that's going to happen, um, you know, in like one ride, but uh, <laughs> sure, but you get the idea. Anyway, so that's kind of the engine in a nutshell. Okay. So um, the chassis, it's a, it's a good looking bike. You said that the, uh, the Rally Pro has longer suspension travel than the GT Pro. So, um, so what they're, they're both, uh, with show a suspension? Uh, no. So there are some pretty big differences here. And that's where the, the personality, um, differences are going to be seen. Now with respect to the GT pro specifically, we're dealing with a Marzocchi 45 millimeter fork uses 7.1 inches of travel up front also has a Marzocchi shock in the rear 6.1 seven inches of travel. Now, if you compare that to your average 17 inch wheeled street bike, that's still a hefty amount of suspension travel, which means that this bike is, you know, still a bit taller than most. Uh, that said, it's not egregiously raised up into the sky. And, you know, Triumph has gone a long way to, to make the thing pretty approachable in terms of seat and, and, uh, you know, styling and things of that nature. Triumph really, really strives to make a, a tightly packaged, slim motorcycle. And I think these are some of the best examples of that design philosophy from the brand because your standover height, and you can stand quite comfortably on the GT Pro, you know, you're, you're slim between the knees and I can get my 32-inch inseam on the ground. Um, the seat itself has two positions. It's adjustable for, for two positions. So it starts at 32.3 inches. It goes all the way up to 33.1. 
interestingly enough, I actually found the tall seat height a little more comfortable just because it created a bit more gap between the foot pegs and the seat itself. Uh, whereas the Rally Pro, obviously, it's got more suspension travel. It's going to have more height. It is a lot taller. So that seat height at its lowest setting is 33.9 inches and then raises up to 34.6. Now, focusing in on the suspension, as I mentioned before, you have that Marzocchi suspension. And with the GT Pro specifically, not the base model, uh, you get an electronic shock. And I want to be clear on this point because it is a little bit confusing if we look at the larger spectrum of features that are currently on motorcycles. This shock is electronically adjustable from that TFT dash that I praised earlier uh, in the podcast. And what I mean is the spring preload, compression, and rebound are all adjustable from the dash. You simply just click through and firm it up or soften it up. There you go. Simple as pie. On, on the fly or, or do you have to stop to do it? No, that is on the fly. Uh, the fork itself is non-adjustable. And between them, the Rally Pro just has a little bit more of a streetable chassis feel. You know, obviously their geometry is a bit different because, you know, one bike is a bit more squatty. The other one is quite lanky in length. Um, and the the GT Pro is also a bit lighter. Uh, some, there's something like a, I think like a 10 pound difference between them or something like that uh, at any rate really because of the 19 inch wheel the fact that the the gt pro is sitting a bit lower overall it just doesn't have as much suspension to jack it up into the air you know it feels a little bit more confident on the edge of the tire feels a li little bit more streetable we'll say in a conventional sense uh, it also has those cast aluminum wheels and it it really leans into the sport touring duty overall you know it's it's handling is is pretty pretty neutral for the most part and you're sat in a cockpit that gives you some nice wide bars and you know you have plenty of leverage to just shove the thing around but realistically it doesn't exactly need to be to be pushed around in a you know significant manner um but for the most part if you're looking for something that's going to be more street oriented give you a little bit more confidence on the edge of the tire Obviously, this bike is just physically more conducive to that riding experience. It's everything about it in terms of its geometry and features really speaks to those abilities. Now, the suspension itself, I would say it's quite streetable suspension. Um, you still got some ground clearance on it. So realistically, you could take the GT Pro off-road like, you know, on like fire roads and stuff and go to campgrounds and things like that. I wouldn't necessarily start jumping it, but you know, it, <laughs> it has more ground clearance than it, than your, than your average, just, you know, straight up and down street bike. Um, and, you know, of course it's, it's derivative of an ADV platform. So we're, we're well within the realm of reason. Um, yeah. And that's kind of the GT pro in a nutshell. All right. Um, in, in terms of handling, do they handle radically differently? Yeah, a little bit. And my take with the, you know, the, the GT Pro and the Rally Pro, there, there really isn't anything that the Rally Pro can't do because it can tour. 
it uh, remember it's still the same frame uh same subframe roughly the same seating position there are some you know slight differences but in terms of raw features i mean we're talking about bikes that have cruise control they have heated seats as well as heated pillion seats they have heated grips um one hand adjustable windscreen uh you know bluetooth connectivity you know, out the wazoo with the dash um you also get uh you know a center stand you get crash protection on the rally pro because the gt pro just doesn't really need it although it is optional if you wanted to go that route um and you know these bikes are extremely well appointed sure and that's where the tiger 900 uh especially the pro models stand out against the competition from ktm bmw ducati uh, and the japanese where most of these features that we see standard here so cruise control center stand heated grips uh heated rider and passenger seats um uh, usb chargers uh crash protection center stands all of these things more often than not are optional from the other brands so they're going to be costing you significantly more money. uh you know basically take the msrp and then go from there and then with respect to ktm right they also charge for ride modes which the tiger family does not do in fact i don't think triumph does that at all across any of its platforms which is great they should be lauded for that because uh that's super annoying when brands do that it's it's miserable anyway moving on <laughs> um you know the gt pro starts out at sixteen thousand eight hundred ninety five dollars with the tiger 900 rally pro going up to seventeen thousand three hundred ninety five dollars so there is a price increase from year to year or generation to generation we'll say but back to the task at hand is there a difference in handling between them yes and that's really really because we're dealing with a rally pro that has much longer suspension it's taller it's taller you're raising that center of gravity so you're pushing weight a bit higher and there's some pluses and negatives to that uh more importantly we're using different tires between the two uh the two models uh, and the 21 inch wheel that said, the Rally Pro, like I mentioned before, there isn't anything it can't do when compared to the GT Pro. So it can tour, it can ride on the street nearly as competently. You know, it's, it's, there's not a world apart between them in terms of their handling. I would, I, I would say, you know, someone say, well, well, then why have the GT Pro? There's a great reason for that. If you simply aren't interested in riding off road, or say you might be a shorter rider that has difficulty with these taller bikes as pretty much any rider does if they're actually honest um you know that bike becomes an extremely viable option because let's be honest a lot of people may not want to go and grab their 500 plus pounds motorcycle and go around and slide it out off road and jump it they may not be interested in that i am but a lot of people are and i get that Instead, they just have an ADV styled tour with enormous amounts of amenities. And I can't fault someone for going that route because you do get a little bit of extra ground clearance compared to a normal street bike. And it handles almost as well. I mean, it's pretty astounding what manufacturers have done with these larger wheel sizes, because if you had gone back, maybe, I don't know, 
eight, 10 years or so, this conversation would be a lot different. You know, we'd be saying, oh, well, the 19, it's, uh, you know, it's okay. <laughs> but now they're actually pretty awesome. And double kudos to the, the Rally Pro, because despite having a 21-inch wheel, doesn't seem to slow it down too much. Yes, there are some handling differences, as in the 21-inch wheel doesn't offer the same kind of uh, eagerness when you're tipping into a corner than the GT Pro will do. But it's again, it's not a world off. Where the rally, the rally pro really takes off is off-road, obviously. Now, our off-road terrain in, in Malaga was, I would say, some really fast, twisty, and engaging fire roads for about 90% of the time. And, you know, there's some loamy sand, rocky bits, a couple, I don't necessarily want to say hill climbs, but hills that we climbed. So not entirely <laughs> the same thing. Uh, and that suspension is killer. That is some good stuff right there. That show a fully adjustable suspension. Um, you know, the damping, it it has this, this sort of suppleness to it that, that at first you might think, ah, I don't know if this is really going to hold up off-road, but it does have good holdup. So as you're kind of charging through rocky bits, maybe you're going through some rain ruts at high speed and just kind of blasting through things to see what it can do it it really stands up to things and keeps the chassis quite level uh, without bucking stuff and in, in you know too far out of shape and and the grip that you get from the chassis is also also very commendable um you know this is a a middleweight adv that i would say between the rally pro and the toreg 660 these are the two bikes that i feel the most comfortable on riding off road um Despite that, I'll also acknowledge that these aren't the most "quote unquote" hardcore off-road ADV bikes. Uh, that that title still probably goes to the the KTM 890 Adventure R. But I will say, the Rally Pro, in terms of its overall balance and what it can do both on and off-road, it's kind of hard to beat. Um, you know. That said, you know, jumping a uh, 500 pounds, I think the Rally Pro is 503 pounds. Um, jumping a bike of that size, you're going to go through the stroke and, you know, use every bit of it. But even, you know, jumping to flat, it it takes things on the chin that a lot of bikes would be pretty concerned with, especially the lower end, middleweight ADV motorcycles. Um, now, with respect to the riding positions, as I said, they 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 mirror each other somewhat. Uh, that is the same fuel tank between them. Uh, but the GT Pro, its foot pegs were sat back just a little bit more and the handlebar is sat forward just, just a bit more. Now the handlebar is rubber rubber mounted for this year. So it, it helps quell some of the engine vibrations, really adds to that whole kind of serene charm that that's kind of streaming through everything. And then with the Rally Pro, They've actually moved the handlebar back about 15 millimeter or so. And the foot pegs per the last update are actually nudged forward. So what that's going to do is when you're off-road, you're actually able to stand up, have really good standover height um, and control over the bike. That's one of the things that I think really spoke to me personally for my five foot, 10 inch frame with the Rally Pro is 
yes, the chassis is definitely confidence inspiring. I felt that I had really good grip both on and off-road. I was able to control the engine and slides and things like that. Um, but the riding position is a very critical thing there as well. And, and I think they've done a good job here because at lower speeds, these these middleweight ADV bikes that are cresting into 500 pounds, you know, they're all kind of susceptible to feeling a bit, a bit heavy. Um, when you're, you're crawling along and trying to, you know, go through some technical bits, but being able to manipulate and control the bike. And the fact that I had an extremely narrow chassis between my, between my knees and I can, you know, steer with the foot pegs and manipulate everything nicely. That really helps and pays off. Um, you know, it's where on leader bikes where there's even more fuel up high and their center of gravity is higher, that may not translate as well. Um, at any rate, off-road, super impressed with that. And then one of the other things that um, Triumph has done here. So when you go into off-road, whether you're on the GT Pro or the Rally Pro, the off-road mode offers a off-road specific traction control mode. And that really is going to help for people that are getting their feet wet with ADV riding as a whole. Um, so it doesn't doesn't let you step it out and slide like, you know, doing a huge uh, cool Dakar, you know, impression. But it keeps things within reason. Now, with the Rally Pro, you do have the ability to go in the pro mode and just shut everything off as you see fit. And there's also a rider mode. Um, too, so you can just kind of build a custom map. But I will say here, between the off-road traction control and just going to off, I feel like there should be a TC mode that's between the two. And let me explain why. For intermediate riders, those that do have some time, you know, riding off-road, I think it would be beneficial to just help them climb that ladder between what I would say is a conservative off-road traction control setting and then the full Monty off. And then you're getting the full Zoot, you know, 888cc engine, which again, extremely tractable at low to mid RPM. And then as you get up into that 7,500 mark, you know, that mm -hmm. thing can light off. And it's uh, it's fun, no doubt. Uh, that said, I'm not sure how often normal people are going to be spinning up near the red line off-road unless you're just like trying to roost people which again <laughs> i enjoy may not be forever um <laughs> the moment you start figuring out you're going to do it to your buddies and give their paint jobs you know some custom work but yeah i, I do think there's a, a a bit a bit room for expansion in that case and this is kind of a conscious decision on triumph's part in speaking with their engineers, they've always stressed um, simplicity to their user inter interfaces and their riding modes, which those two concepts are intimately tied, if you kind of think about it holistically. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they, they want a mode that you can essentially just, you know, tap the mode, do the thing, it's intuitive, okay, go to town. Whereas, you know, other brands really lean into getting into the fine minutia. Uh, for example, what comes to mind is the BMW S1000RR that has plus and minus seven traction control modes. So in total, it has 14 levels of TC, including off. 
So, you know, there's a, there's, there's a middle ground, right? You know, there's, there's too much and there's too little. Sure. Sure. And that's just as, you know, as an, as an example. And I don't think Triumph is doing too little here, not by any stretch of the imagination. I just think maybe a little more something, something there. At any rate, when we kind of boil it all down, you have the GT Pro that is really angled towards street riding. And if you're doing some pretty tame off-roading, which to be fair, most ADV owners are going to be going in that direction, the GT Pro can you know, easily handle it. You just avoid sand and you know super rocky stuff and you'll be okay but your average fire road going to camping grounds things like that you're going to be more than golden the rally pro that thing is a proper trail buster it's going to be fighting with your ducati desert x's your ktm 890 adventure r's your Touring 660s things of that nature and what it brings to the party and specifically is the same stuff that it bring that the GT Pro brings to the party, which is a level of refinement and technology that some of the other bikes just can't offer. And it offers them off the factory floor. So those are the kind of the, the Tiger 900s in a nutshell. We rode two out of three um, in Malaga, the Pro models specifically. And, and that's what you're getting between them. And for me, I would steer towards the Rally Pro just because I like the fact that I can go off-road and really attack things and, and have something that I trust. And then when I get back on the actual pavement, the thing handles beautifully and, well, it's got all the creature comforts that I could ever want. Whereas if I were a more road-biased individual, the GT Pro would absolutely take care of me in every respect. Um, but yeah, those are those are the main changes in a nutshell. And if you guys were looking for complaints in this in this whole podcast or within the reviews, they are pretty slim. And I'll kind of go over that. One, the new TFT display, despite the fact that I I really do like it a lot more than the prior generation and its its user interface specifically. Um, I would say that the the dash is a little bit slow to to power up which isn't exactly the worst thing on, on, in the world, but it does give me that sort of like, Oh God, is the battery dead? Uh, <laughs> thing. Right. And, um, you know, I, I feel like the TC maps could be a little bit more fleshed out, but beyond that, it's really tough to have, have hard complaints. So this is one of those stories where I came home and thought to myself, this needs a comparison because now, now we just need to, need to get into the nitty gritty of where things stand. Um, it's not necessarily a, a matter of things jumping out us at us at, at the press launch where we can go, okay, this is objectively not so good, yada, yada, yada. It's obvious that Triumph has been doing their homework. And uh, what really shines through is something that Triumph has been offering on a lot of their models, which is always that, that touch of class, a bit more luxury, and they do it from the get-go instead of charging you an arm and a leg for all those options. Uh, despite that, you get plenty of performance in either model. And again, it's just that extra step. So that's the 2024 Triumph Tiger 900 GT Pro and Rally Pro uh, in a 46-minute nutshell. <laughs> Terrific. I have to say, I fall exactly on the opposite side of you. For me, the GT Pro is the most attractive because... 
I really don't ride off-road hardly at all, but I would definitely need to take it on, you know, sort of fire roads and like you say, the campgrounds and what have you. So I'd be looking for a bike that is, you know, sort of 90-10 biased towards the road and the GT Pro is is perfect. I also like the idea of it being a little shorter and, you know, I, I dislike clambering onto giant ADV bikes that I'm only going to ride on the road or, or mainly on the road. So the GT Pro is actually really appealing. So it's quite interesting that you and I fall into these two completely different camps and and Triumph have really addressed addressed both sides really extremely well. So uh, it looks and sounds like a really appealing motorcycle. Um, both versions, just pick the version you prefer. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much for your insight. I really appreciate it. They, they're great bikes, clearly. In our second segment this week, TJ Adams chats with Aussie motorcycle racer Taylor Ralph. Taylor was recently selected to enter the inaugural FIM Women's Motorcycling World Championship that is starting this year. Taylor talks about the physical and the financial challenges and the motivation that has brought her to competing at the very top of her sport. Here's a little known fact. TJ's son, Reed went to high school in Brisbane with Taylor. First of all, I heard you quoted this, and I don't know if you remember, I simply froth at being at the racetrack. <laughs> does that ring a bell? It does. That one does, yes. <laughs> that sounds like me. So what sort of a feeling is it? I mean, you must have had this from an early age. Um, talk us through how you first came about being at a racetrack. Yeah, so, um, you know, we didn't really have any family history of motorsport whatsoever. My parents owned a motorbike when they were younger, um, but purely just to ride on the road. There was no racing to it. There was no competitiveness to it or anything like that. And um, I have a sister, so it's not even like I have any brothers that, you know, were interested in it. Um, and yeah, when I was about two and a half years old, mum and dad took me to a Krusty Demon's uh event basically which is where you know the motocross riders are doing backflips in the air and everything like that and um, I threw a tantrum on the floor and said that I refused to get up until Santa bought me a motorbike and so luckily Santa got me a Wee 50 that year for Christmas um, and yeah the rest is history I've been starting uh, started since I was three and dad thought oh heck you know I better I better learn how to ride a motorbike competitively sort of thing. So dad bought a motorbike again um, and he, you know, it was good. He got back into it and yeah, we started, um, started obviously with the dirt side of things, motocross and some flat track, but it never really quite gelled. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, but you know, I was never super fast at motocross or flat track or anything like that. Um, and then, yeah, we had some friends who, were into the road racing side of things and the super motard and whatnot. Um, and yeah, they just said, why don't you just chuck a set of slicks on, you know, my KDM 65. And we went out to the go-kart track and did that. And I just, I refused to leave. Dad took me after school that day um, to the track and the sun was setting and I was just doing lap after lap after lap. And um, yeah, he couldn't get me off the track. And I knew from there that, you know, road racing, that was, that was my thing. <laughs> That's fascinating because it really sounds like it was in your blood. You kind of reverse engineered your family into getting involved in motorsport. Yes. 
yeah, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into when they, um, yeah, when they bought me that Peewee 50 for Christmas. So you've come all the way to now riding um, in the Australian um, superbikes and you're competing currently, get, let me get this right, in the Supersport 300s, which is men and women, that's mixed, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So I've been racing, um, started racing in the ASBK Australian Superbikes from, oh, I don't know what year it was, but I must have been maybe around 13 or 14. Um, and yeah, started in the Moto3 category. So I had the Honda, um, the Honda Moto3. And yeah, I was still not quite, you know, fully adapting to the road road racing side of things. I was certainly quick and I was certainly, you know, battling for not last place, <laughs> you know, if you could say, um, against men. Um, and then, yeah, it sort of wasn't until I was maybe around, I'd say, 16, 17, that all of a sudden one year for the season, it just, it all just clicked for me. Um, and then, you know, I was became the first person you know the first girl to ever win an Australian championship race against males and that was that was sort of my turning point with my career of you know proving to myself that I can actually I can win you know I can I can I can actually do this and it proved to a lot of other people as well that you know I wasn't this just there to make up grid numbers I was actually you know I was there to win and I would do anything that it took to to do that so yeah it was a it was a very lovely little turning point for me. <laughs> And you set a record there being a, a first female winner for Australia in an Australian race. Yes. Yeah. So that was, um, yeah, that was a, a history making moment, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, I was the first female to win a, a, an Australian superbike race um, for, for that one. And then, yeah, that year as well, I also won a, a whole entire round. So, um, you know, the accumulated points over our three races, um, you know, I had the most points and the most consecutive podiums, I guess you could say, um, and won that round. So again, that was another history breaking moment. Um, and that year as well, I, you know, I didn't just stop at that one race win. I won another race in Western Australia that season as well. So yeah, definitely uh, one of the highlights of my, of my uh, career there. Can you pinpoint that as you were feeling different then? It sounds like suddenly you were achieving so much more. Definitely. Um, The year prior to that, you know, I just, I didn't know whether it was me, obviously, um, you know, I was going through puberty and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I think that changed a lot for me the year prior and I was just crashing just all the time. Um, and, you know, just nothing was really clicking. Um, one race meet, I would be super, super competitive and I'd be right there. And then the next race weekend, I would be nowhere. I'd be crashing, um, you know, and it definitely dampened my spirits a fair bit. And then I guess once I matured a little bit, um, that's when I then went into, you know, that following year and it was just all, it all just came together for me. So I'm glad that I persevered in the year that was super, super challenging for me. Um, you know, I knew that it wasn't me, how I was racing, how I was, you know, always very inconsistent. Um, and, you know, mum and dad just kept saying, are you sure you want to do it? You know, are you sure you want to keep going? And I just kept saying to them, I was like, no, 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 like, I know that I can do it. Like, this is just a bad year. Like, it's just a bad year. It's just a bad season. You know, even MotoGP riders have extremely bad seasons. So I'm just a 16 year old girl that is going to go through that exact same thing I can't let that stop me so um, I'm glad that I did persevere and keep on going it but you know on the flip side of that I'm also glad that my parents didn't put a stop to it um, you know I'm glad that they trusted me just as much as I trusted myself as well. Yeah I find it really interesting that you seem to have such a gut instinct and you know you're just following not just a dream that's somewhere high pie in the sky you really are able to achieve and and you know, make something of it. 
it's quite quite amazing. And you mentioned crashes. Now I know I did see that you had quite a nasty crash. I've pinpointed it to Darwin 2013, but I think there was also another one. But I I watched this one and your bike went over on top of you. You were sort of sprawled and sliding down the track, and then you got up and limped over to the bike and you actually picked it up on your own. I was just amazed. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite well known in Australian racing for my um magnificent crashes, let's just say. Um, and I also scare a lot of people from how I bounce back from my crashes as well. So um, yeah, the Darwin crash in 2013, that one sort of went a little bit viral. I ended up on Fox Sports and everything, you know, um, because of that crash. And yeah, that one was, I look back on it now and it's quite funny. Um, again, I don't know what went through me. Um, I just trusted my instincts of, you know, knowing that I could keep going. But yeah, that one I ran over my neck with my front tire um, and I got third degree burns from the top of the chin to the bottom of my neck. Um, and, you know, it, it was quite funny. They rushed me to the emergency unit. Um, my dad stayed at the track um, because my bike was quite badly damaged and it was only Saturday. So I still had two more races to go on Sunday. And I said to, you know, obviously mum and dad were with me in the ambulance and I said, dad, you stay here. I'll be back. I'll be back in a few hours. Like you get my bike fixed. I'll I'll be back. And mum was just looking at me like, Taylor, you've got burnt rubber like in your neck. Like I can see the rubber burnt into your neck. She was like, you're not, you're not riding tomorrow. And so anyway, they took me to the um, hospital and they said, they were like, you know, you've got to, you got to go underneath, um, you know, under anesthetic and we need to actually properly clean this out. And I was like, no, I was like, I know that if you put me under anesthetic, I can't race tomorrow. I said, do whatever you need to, but scrub my neck while I'm awake. I was only 15 or something at this, at this stage, I was only 15. And yeah, the doctor looked at me and was like, no, like you're only 15. Um, We can't, we can't put you through that amount of pain. We need to put you under. Anyway, I argued, I argued a lot. Mum ended up having to step out of the room because she was just beside herself. And yeah, they did. They, they scrubbed my neck of third degree burns while I was awake. They put a towel in my mouth. Um, sorry, because I was screaming so much. And then, um, yeah, so that one was quite funny. And then the other one as well, I had somebody's, uh, it was at Phillip Island in 2019. 2019 or 2018 um and another rider's brake disc went through my leg um and nearly into my femur and it was only three centimeters away from my femoral artery and I it was on the first lap and I kicked him off and I finished the race <laughs> and sort of similar story I then obviously my leg was completely gouged open I thought I lost my kneecap and um <clears throat> they rushed me off to the um Luckily, it was World Superbikes, a World Superbike round. Um, so they had all the proper medics and surgeons and everything there. And they said to me, we need to get a helicopter and fly you off to Melbourne. And I said, no, you're not doing that. This is the first race of the season of the year. And I said, you fly me to Melbourne, I know that I'm done. And I said, if I finished, I literally looked the surgeon in the eye at the track and I said, if I finish the race with my leg open, you can chuck some stitches in it and let me go. I've got a race in an hour. And he was like, are you serious? And I'm like, yep. I said, do whatever you need to. Um, and he was like, we can see your femur, like just you, you need to be put under. And I was like, nope, like you do whatever you need to do and get me going. So yeah, they had to put very little anesthetic in my leg because I had to feel if the stitches ripped open while I was riding because obviously the where the laceration was was right at my knee so right where you bend your leg the most so yeah I had four stitches put in my leg 
Um, and then they sent me off and I finished the race weekend, um, had to get the bandages all replaced every single race because it was bleeding that much. And yeah, then spent a week in hospital and had surgery and yeah, was racing again two weeks later. <laughs> so it's pretty serious if you spent that much time in hospital. I mean, did you just not feel the pain or? Oh, no, I could feel the pain. No, I could feel the pain. Um, But, you know, it was just I'm a very, very determined, I'm a very determined person. Um, And you know, I think that's why I've gotten so far in my career because I've never let little injuries like that, that, you know, would put a football player probably out of his season for six months. I let it stop me for half an hour. Um, you know, I, I don't let little things like that stop me. Um, I can just, I guess, have number one, have a high pain threshold. Um, and number two, yeah, I just I don't let things like that hinder me, really. <laughs> Do you think you have the sensibility to make, you're making a sort of, a decision you you realize it's not life-threatening and you make a decision or are you just completely gung-ho yeah well that the laceration I thought wasn't quite life-threatening um until I realized when I got flown to um the Gold Coast Hospital and had surgery that I realized how close it was to being life-threatening it was only three centimeters away essentially from me being dead in 30 seconds um so you know that was a little bit of a whoa okay maybe I should have listened to the doctors um but you know again in saying that if I had have gone to the, and, you know, I guess followed their instructions and had have gone to the hospital, then that would have been a whole entire season gone basically for me. So, um, yeah, I just, sometimes I make good decisions. Sometimes I make bad decisions, but you know, it, it's just one of those things you, you spend that much money and you have that many people, I guess, relying on you to do well, that you don't want to let them down and yeah, I just do whatever I can. <laughs> now this has all been worth it because you have just um, it's just been announced. You've been selected to race in the FIM Women's Circuit Racing. So that's alongside World Superbike. This is worldwide. You are now on the worldwide stage. How do you feel about that? It's It still hasn't quite sunk in that I've been selected to race in a world championship. Um, you know, I keep looking at my partner like every half an hour with just the massive grin on my face and just be like, I'm a world championship rider. Like, you know, it's just, it's not something that I ever thought would have been possible. And, you know, that that's got nothing to do with my gender or anything like that. It's more got to do with, you know, in Australia, it's so hard to get into a world championship and financially it's so hard as well. And sometimes while I've never let being a female stop me, um, or, you know, or the, or the stigma of being a female in motorsports stop me, it is something that is, I guess, extremely hard to sell yourself to, to people that don't understand motorsport and to people that don't know who I am and what I've achieved. And sometimes, you know, finding sponsors um, to actually believe in you and believe in your ability to, you know, go on and do really good things can sometimes be really, really challenging. But, you know, when it's actually a championship of the fastest females all around the world, all coming together to actually battle it out for a world championship together, um, you know, it it does make the realism of, you know, I could actually be in a, I could actually be a world champion at the end of this year. And that's a really, really cool thing. And the amount of support that I've gotten over the past four days has been incredible. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would have gotten. Because, you know, you have been years. It always looks to people when someone comes to the fore that they've just done it. But you've been years at this sport and you've achieved so much along the way. I mean, I, I saw that you started training with um, the Slide King, Gary Moore, who's a, a MotoGP racer. So, yes. you know, you, you've really had proper training you haven't just sort of um winged your way in yeah when I, I wish I understood now how significant that was to have Gary McCoy in my corner um I used to 
I used to live in um, Brisbane in Queensland, which is where obviously um, Gary bases himself as well. And, you know, back then I had no idea of the significance. Um, You know, he gave me his race leather suit. I was racing with his helmet. And, you know, but just as a little kid, you're just like, oh, cool. Like, you know, I've seen sick videos of you on YouTube and, you know, you, you don't actually realize the, yeah, the, who it is, you know, that's helping you until now, because we would go to like our local track Morgan Park Raceway um, on like a Thursday coaching day before a race weekend. And he would literally just go there just for me and he would be following me. And then I would have to follow him and like, cause he could see that I had the talent, but I didn't have the knowledge to, and that's why I would crash all the time because I just had no fear. So I would just go like just guns blazing into a corner, but I was on the middle of the track, not on the outside of the track. And he's like, you have no fear. So if we can actually just train you to understand the concept of race lines, apexes, all of that. And God, he spent maybe six months just tailing me. He's now the, so the junior road racing program that we have um, in Australia, the Oceana Junior Cup, Gary McCoy is now the coach for that championship so he basically it's quite funny looking at it now but like what he did for me as a one-on-one thing when I was younger he now does for all of the juniors in that Oceana Junior Cup championship which is pretty cool so yeah he's still heavily invested in it but um yeah it's good to see him it's good to see him still so invested in the sport yeah it wasn't like I had it wasn't like I came from background of racing of a family that raced it we literally started from the ground up um and you know Gary was just such a phenomenal help to me and I'm forever and eternally grateful for the support that he gave me you know to literally let me use his leathers that he raced in you know back in the day to use his leather to use his helmet that he raced in back in the day like yeah it's it's crazy looking back on it now and I wish I knew I wish I knew how big that was when I was younger to actually you know fully appreciate it but I do now (laughs) yeah I saw that that's awesome it's funny you say all that because um we had Kayla Yakov on here as a guest and I sort of said to her how you know you're so young and she said well I don't realize that from my point of view everyone's saying that to me you're so young but as you say when you were 13 it didn't it didn't click what you were dealing with there (laughs) yeah it didn't click at all you know it wasn't until to me it was just such a normal lifestyle and a normal childhood that I had um and you know it was always quite funny coming through school everyone would always be like oh what are you doing this weekend and I'd be like oh I'm riding my motorbike like in Victoria and they're like and you know, I lived in Queensland then and Australia is a very big country. So to go from Queensland to Victoria is a very long trek. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm just going to Victoria for the weekend just to just to race my motorbike. And they're like, oh, okay, like I've got to clean my bedroom. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that like that must suck. But again, as as a child, you just don't understand, you know, how lucky you are to actually be brought up in motorsport. And, you know, I was racing that much in the end that I um, was homeschooled for a few years. Um, And, you know, me and mum basically just traveled around Australia and just followed all of the racetrack calendars of Australia. And that was just to, you know, race just as much as I could. Um, And yeah, again, you don't, you don't realize that until you're older now I'm 27 now. Um, And yeah, I just look back and I'm like, you know what, I've, I've had a pretty cool life. Yeah, I mean, all on the bank of mum and dad, presumably they've had to finance you with, you know, increasing sponsors as you've gone along. But now you find you've had less than a week to actually secure your spot in this uh, world on the world stage. You have to pay for your spot. So how have you gone about you? I think you had to raise 20,000 just to keep the spot, 20,000 Australian dollars. How's that going? I mean, it's only been a day or so. (laughs) I am tired. (laughs) I'm very tired. Um, Yeah, so you get 
seven days from the from your first confirmation email. Um, and yeah, as you said, you know, mum and dad, they're, they're obviously there and backing me 110%. But I put my foot down with mum and dad when I turned 18 um, and said to them, look, you've given me the most amazing lifestyle. Um, you guys have put a lot of your life on hold, um, you know, for me to race motorbikes. I'm 18 now, I can get a full-time job, I can pay for it myself. And I kind of, I was the one that essentially cut them off from paying for my racing anymore because I realized how much they'd sacrificed. When I did that, keep in mind, I had no idea how expensive racing was. Found out when I said to them, I'm a big girl, I can pay for racing. And I then said to them about a month later, hey, this this sport's pretty expensive. Um, So yeah, it's like I said, I've got given seven days from um, the confirmation email to find uh, it's 10,000 euro. So that's approximately 16,000 Australian um, to, yeah, to essentially secure your seat. And if you don't get that deposit amount uh, into Dorna by the, by the seven days, yeah, your seat is basically kicked off to the side and the person on the wait list uh, then takes your spot. And there's no, there's no leeway with that either. They're pretty strict on it. So Again, I've been overwhelmed by the amount of support that has come my way since I've actually announced it. Um, I was going to keep it all under wraps because, uh, you know, I didn't want to let people down in case I didn't get to that $16,000 and then had to, you know, let everyone then know, hey, sorry, I can't do it. Um, I didn't get to the amount in time. Um, But, you know, again, I've had some really great support back home um, and just, you know, some really substantial people that I've reached out to um some really well-known people that I've reached out to and they all said no you know get get this online let everyone know that you're doing it this is a once in a lifetime opportunity people will people will come and they will they will help you so yeah I've been overwhelmed we're still not quite there but we're a lot closer than what we were 48 hours ago um so yeah I have no doubt that by the end of the weekend we'll we'll be there so yeah Fantastic. And we'll put links to wherever people can reach you for sponsorship and fundraising um, in our show notes. So people will know how to get in touch with you. I mean, we have like an average of about 70,000 people listening each week. So if they all put it amazing, (laughs) that would get you somewhere. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, I mean, presumably you have a university debt. You've put yourself through university. You have your degree in journalism. And that's the uh, business side of things that you've gone into. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, when I've always known that I wanted to do something in motorsport, um, you know, as someone who's been in motorsport since I was three years old, I literally, I don't know anything else. <laughs> you know, I, I, I live and dream and breathe motorsport and anything related to motorsport. And I know that not everyone can race their whole entire life. Uh, so I made it quite clear to myself that, you know, I would find some way to make sure I'm always within the paddock. It didn't matter whether I was racing or working. I knew that I could never just step away from racing and go cold turkey and not have anything to do with the sport. Um, Essentially, I owe my whole entire life to motorsport. Um, You know, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it. You know, like I haven't, without motorsport, I wouldn't have been able to achieve what I have. Um, You know, I wouldn't have been able to see the world or see Australia or anything like that without motorsport. So I did my Bachelor of Journalism degree because I've done, I did so many, I guess, TV interviews and, um, you know, podcast interviews and written interviews and whatnot. Um, And I had some really great advice from one of the um, TV producers of Fox Sports. And he basically just said, 
do do your bachelor of journalism like you can make it in the journalism side of things and yeah I'm really glad I did that now I'm the national press officer for the world superbike round for Australia um which has been incredible you know working with Dorna um to I guess to yeah to work to work alongside Dorna and Phillip Island um for the world superbike round um so basically that just entails looking after the media center um looking after all of the actual uh tv news journalism side of things writing all the race reports um yeah and that's just been a, a phenomenal journey that one um and then yeah I have my own company as well in PR and social media management um and take all the photo and videography side of things for that as well so you know I've, I've always wanted to set myself up to make sure that yeah when I did step away from the racing side of things I could still be involved in in motorsport no matter what no matter what that is and each face of that is perpetuating. So everything's going hand in hand. So your your company is Takeo Creative. Who that's um, marketing and um, Instagram, increasing people's presence, that sort of in- engagement on Instagram and all social media. How how does that run when you are not around, especially now that you're going to be all over the world? Yes, I'm super lucky. Um, we grew like Takeo Creative grew quite phenomenally. Um, in 2023, so I've got a um, I've got somebody who works for me. Um, who shares my same values and passion. Um, and sees the I guess the end goal for Takeo Creative. Um, and I'm super lucky that in 2024 he is still able to I guess uh, continue that for me. Um, in ASBK, luckily. Um. I only missed three ASBK rounds, so I'll still be there whenever I can. Um, But, you know, it's something that I'm so passionate about. I know that when you're racing, the last thing you think about is your social media presence um, because you've got so much other stuff going on. But your social media presence and engagement throughout a race weekend is what builds your own personal brand. It's what keeps your sponsors happy. It's what, um, you know, keeps all of your fans happy. And, uh, you know, essentially when you do really well it's the first thing that journalists go to is your social media platform to get your results so we've had some really really good feedback um over the past two years since I've been doing this for writers um and you know watching their own personal brand grow and watching their engagement grow and just watching you know I guess essentially their following base grow um substantially over the past two years since we've been managing it it's not something that I could just step away from and you know, say, hey, sorry, we've gotten you this far. You're off your own now because I'm going to go racing. Um, I wanted to make sure that I could keep doing that. And, you know, in on the flip side of that, since working so closely with riders while I haven't been racing um, full-time myself, I've now grown an even bigger understanding of the importance of marketing, sponsorship proposals and sponsorship engagement as well that I think that's why right now I'm a bit of a, a, a I'm working towards being one of those powerhouse people of like, you know, really being able to just make the most of my sponsors, um, you know, and give them the best possible, uh, you know, exposure that they can get, um, you know, from helping me out. So yeah, it's sort of, it was worked hand in hand and yeah, I think that's why right now I know that I can make this world championship happen, but it's just going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, but in the long run, it's going to be completely 110% worth it. So I also saw that you, um, you've you been quite involved in introducing female riders to motorcycling, just racing and, and road riding as a hobby, um, because you started um, Southwest Track Days, and that was in, I can't say this properly, I don't think, <laughs> Warn Mabul in... <laughs> Warn Mabul. Warn Mabul. Warn Mabul. 
Now, this is when you were over in Victoria, which for those that don't know is near Melbourne in Australia. So um, you set up track days and training there. Was that specifically aimed at women or it just happened to go that way? Um, it wasn't specifically aimed at women. It was, you know, we live in a, so Warrnambool is a regional Victorian town. So we're about three hours away from Melbourne and to get onto a racetrack in Warrnambool is very hard and financially it's very challenging as well. So essentially we just got in contact with our local go-kart track, uh, me and my partner, cause he races as well. And we just said, Hey, can we jump on the go-kart track every Wednesday and just, you know, have a bit of a ride because we saw that everybody else living in you know large city towns were riding every single week at their go-kart track and we were like you know we have to we have to replicate that on our end and yeah it sort of just grew from myself and my partner just riding around the go-kart track to then people stopping and seeing what we were doing them coming and saying hey how can we get involved um we want to ride we want to learn how to ride on a track as well and it literally just grew into what it was today um I've always been very passionate about getting females into motorsport I always felt that when I was younger I never had the support of anyone actually you know trying to help me essentially through through my racing um and that was something that I find I really lacked. And if it weren't for sort of how I mentioned earlier, you know, if it weren't for my perseverance and my determination and I guess my confidence in myself and my ability, I would have just stepped away from the sport when, you know, I had a few bad crashes. I had no one, I guess, explaining to me that when I was growing up, um, you know, when I first got my period and stuff like that, how actual mentally cha challenging that is when you're younger and it's not until now that I look back and put two and two together that every time I had those really bad race weekends was when I was on my period, essentially. And, you know, if it weren't for, again, my perseverance and now looking back on it, like, you know, I wish I knew back then that that's actually what it was. It was just because my hormones were changing that weekend and my brain just was a little bit not so clear, um, you know. And so for me, when I got older, it was really important for me to actually, I guess, be that support channel that I never got when I was younger. And then we had a young girl, Ella McCausland, come to one of our days. She hadn't raced before or anything like that. She just had a little ovale and was riding around on a racetrack. And she reminded me 110% of myself. You know, I looked at her and I was like, you know, you are me. She was just so incredibly fast, just such a natural talent. But, you know, she just lacked the the coaching side of things. Um, you know, she was just incredibly fast and had absolutely no fear. And, um, yeah, I just kind of looked at her and I was just like, you remind me of me 100%. And we just basically took her under our wing from from there on in. Um, and yeah, I sort of now see her a little bit as, you know, my little sister. Um, but it was good. I was able to actually, my partner was sort of her main actual rider coach. Um, and then for me, I sort of worked as her, as her mentor, actually navigating through motorsport as a female. She was the only female in the OJC championship. So she was, you know, against all these other males in Australia. Um, and, you know, I saw sometimes little things would crack just simply being a female um, and, you know, having to, yeah, like I said, navigate through that with all the, all the boys that she was around 24 seven and all the pressures as well. Um, all the pressures from school and from the racetrack. Um, and, you know, I was able to actually help mentor her through that of just saying, you know, what you're feeling right now is completely normal. I went through it as well. You know, this is how I tackled that situation. Um, and, you know, I worked closely with her mum and yeah, it was a really rewarding thing for me. And again, I just wish it was something that I had when I was younger. Financially, do you know what it sort of is going to take for you to get onto the, the 
the main you know worldwide stage in the field of racing yeah so we've done a bit of a rough budget um obviously where we're based in Australia uh we can't if we, if we were to fly back and forth after every single round in the women's world championship uh it would be unfinancial you know we wouldn't physically be able to get those finances up so um we've got the added challenge of we've basically got to pack up and move over to Europe um for the duration of the season um so we're budgeting for around two hundred thousand dollars Australian for me to race this championship so you know two hundred thousand dollars that's a lot of money not many people make that in a whole entire year um but it's what I need to find to be able to race in the world championship and to do it. That's not even doing it, you know, 110% competitively. I know that some females that have been selected are racing under a team. So they've got a whole entire crew network of support. Whereas that's basically just budgeting for me and my partner to go over there because you need at minimum one assistant to go with you. Um, so, you know, that's basically and on the crew side of things, that's doing it at the bare minimum. So to be able to actually find $200,000 is going to be a lot of man work to, uh, you know, get that, get that over the line. But again, the amount of support that I've received in the past 48 hours, um, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of effort to, to get there. Um, but again, it's, this is, this championship is a turning point for women in motorsport, Australian women in motorsport. Um, you know, it's essentially providing a network for younger women in motorsport to really look up and just be like, Hey, you know what? I, I can be a world champion. Anna Carrasco, she proved that you could be a world champion as a female against males. So, you know, while, while that did happen, that was a, I think a once in a lifetime thing that could possibly have happened. Um, you know, so it's one of those things of, yeah, she had a really, really good season and she's incredibly fast, but there's not enough women that have sealed and sealed a world championship to be like, you know what, well, I could probably do that as well. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic opportunity for so many businesses to be a part of, to, I guess, essentially help write history. Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. I agree. And you handle this sponsorship side of things yourself. Yes. Yeah. It's all 110% myself, um, which is why I'm quite exhausted at the moment. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I like the sponsorship coming from myself and not a third party because it's something that I want to physically do myself. Um, you know, I, I want to be the one that's making all the contacts and just showing people how much this opportunity actually means to me. Um, you know, to be the only Australian being represented on a world stage to, compete in the first ever women's world championship um that is something that to me money can't buy um I'll, I'll find the money no matter who no matter where it is I find it from I'll be doing it um and you know I just I, yeah I it's it means so much <laughs> 200,000 is a lot of money but it's not as much as I was expecting to hear do you still have to look for um, sponsorship for helmets and leathers and tires are you still looking for those separately on top of that figure yeah, all of that is separate. Um, and you know, the, your crash damage isn't included in that either. So, you know, obviously we've got a budget for that because I can't let, um, the fear of crashing scare me from going 110% when I'm on the bike. Um, so, you know, like I said, at an absolute bare minimum, it's about $200,000, but if you include the likes of your gear, um, the crash damage, you know, any additional flights, obviously while I'm over there, um, over in Europe, I've still got to be able to find time to 
to train, get on any circuit that I can, find a motorbike over there to go race on, um, you know, to, to train on in between. So, you know, I say $200,000, but really in the scheme of things, it's maybe about 300,000, um, you know, once you add everything together. Um, but 200,000 just sounds a lot nicer to me. <laughs> sure, sure. And are you mechanically minded? Have you learned mechanics on the way as you've come through your career? Yeah, I definitely like I'm not I'm no mechanic by trade um, in any sense of the imagination. But no, I do definitely know a little bit about the mechanics side of things. I haven't worked predominantly with a Yamaha R7, but I know that I could pick it up quite quickly. Um, my dad worked in the mines when I was younger, racing in Moto 3s. So uh, it was just me and my mum going to the racetrack in the Australian Championship for around two years. So I had to quickly jump in the deep end and, you know, learn the basics of, you know, changing your tyres, um, you know, changing your wheels, changing all your suspension um, and, you know, just the the general little knick-knacky things that you have to do. Um, again, I'm lucky that my partner, Ted, he also races. Um, he races a superbike in the Australian Championship. Um, um, and was also the 600, the Supersport Australian champion back in 2017. So he is quite mechanically minded as well. So while we don't have a whole entire team, we've got two people that are very determined to, you know, do the best that they can and make the most out of the situation. So, um, yeah, hopefully that's enough to get us by. <laughs> and hopefully we can catch some teams and whatnot, um, you know, throughout the season and see if we can get some additional support there. And Yamaha is supplying you the Yamaha R7? So that's supplied by um, by Dorna, by the actual championship organisation. So you get the one motorcycle and one engine? Yeah, uh, yeah again, none of that's really been specified. Uh, we haven't gotten all that much information, to be honest. Um, and a lot of the girls have, we know that a lot of people have sent through a lot of questions because they've said that they're currently working on putting a document together that goes through all the questions. Um, but as far as I'm aware, yes, so they give you a flat entry fee cost that you have to pay. Um, and then that essentially gives you your um, the R7 that they provide you. Um, it yeah. provides you with the, um, with like your marquee, like your garage, essentially. Um, the uh, they give you um a team of mechanics that works across the whole entire that works across the whole board for the women's championship. So you know, if you do need something to happen, you basically can just ask one of the mechanics to come over and help you. Essentially, if you crash, then that's up to those mechanics to jump in and fix the bike for you um, and then your assistant is supposed to help sort of you know in between for the little things um, and same with suspension tech they provide um, the organization provide that for you um, and then that also provides your tires on lease um, and the hospitality side of things as well. Interesting right okay there is so much to it and do you speak any other languages because you'll probably be mixed with a load of different people yeah I am um, I know how to say where is the toilet in Spanish <laughs> um and that is it <laughs> that's, not, that's not a joke I know that donde esta baño is where is the toilet um and, and that is all that I know in Spanish or any other language <laughs> well I'm sure you'll pick it up and you know when something becomes essential like that you do tend to pick things up and remember them um I've seen you doing a few headstands and that sort of thing what's your general go-to to keep fit yeah so I used to be a gymnast when I was younger so it's one of the things that I've definitely um I guess 
kept up is the gymnastics side of things. Um, so I always love doing handstands. I'm not the most elegant person, but I can be when it comes to handstands. Um, yeah, other than that, really for training purposes, we've got, um, it's a training service in um, Australia called BFT, uh, which is just like group personal training. Um, so we do that nearly six days a week, which has been fantastic. Um, they're also quite great sponsors of mine as well. So um, it's been really good to have them on board. And yeah, other than that, training is essential to just get seat time. So that's where we use our Southwest Track Days business really to the best of our ability um, to just making sure that we're riding as much as possible while also coaching others, um, you know, and making sure that, you know, we're getting within the community and actually building that really, um, I guess, trustful fan base as well. Um, but yeah, basically just training and riding wherever we can. Yeah, the keeping flexible is is a great way. That's probably why you bounce back so well. That's why you bounce yeah. along. The <laughs> That's what a lot of a lot of people have told me that. Um, like a lot of doctors and everything, they're like, "Gosh, you bounce back well." And then they check my flexibility, and they're like, "That's probably why." <laughs> really helps. Really does. Uh, <laughs> when you like, you're going to a brand new motorcycle. How do you go about to getting? How do you go about getting to grips with that? What are the sort of the first things that go through your mind when you sit on a new? brand new to you motorcycle it's been a very long time since I sat on a, a, a new bike I've been riding slash racing the Yamaha R3 now for quite a few years um but you know for me I don't like to how I approach racing I don't like to think about things um you know even when I go to a new racetrack or anything like that I'm not one to sit there and analyze the track I'm just like just get in there and just go um and you know it'll probably be the same for a bike so we're currently trying to organize to get an R7 for me to race next weekend um or for me to ride next weekend um you know just so when I do go over there it's not like I've never ridden an R7 we're quite lucky we don't have we have around five or six months before our season does start overseas um so hopefully we can just get on the R7 as much as possible even though it should somewhat still be the same specs as what I will be racing um, racing overseas. But for me, it's more so just getting used to the weight of the bike. Obviously, it's a lot heavier than the, than the R3. Um, and, yeah, just, I guess, just coming to grips with all of that, making sure that everything is how I like it um, as a rider. But, again, when you go over there, it'll probably be completely different. So you go more by sort of feel, I guess, you're saying. It's more intuitive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and just, I guess, just trialing as much as you can. We don't get all that much time um, but at the actual race weekends. We don't even get practice. We go straight into Super Bowl um, when the actual race season starts. We don't, on Friday, we don't get the three free practice sessions or anything like that. It goes straight into qualifying. So um, it's going to be very challenging this year because, again, racing against women in who are based in Europe. They've ridden at all of these international circuits that we're going to, whereas it's going to be brand new for me. I'm going to be learning every single track, but I know there are probably some other girls that are in the same boat as me. So um, that's definitely going to be a challenge and it might have to stop my ways of, you know, just going to a track and, you know, not really analysing it. I'm probably going to have to do a fair bit of research in Australia before I do head over there. Um, but, you know, we're just going to take... We're just going to take it as it comes day by day. 
And do you get to even look at the track, walk around the track or anything when you arrive? Yeah, so yeah, so we'll be able to walk around it. Um, but yeah, in terms of any warm up to even get a bike set up, no, we don't get from what it is at the moment. From what we know, we don't get any warm up free practice sessions. We get nothing. It just yeah, go straight into qualifying. Well, that's pretty mind blowing. I'm amazed. Um, and you know, as a layperson, when we watch race, we don't realize this sort of thing. It's quite an yeah. Idea. I still I still don't quite yeah. Again, like it might be something that does change. Um, because yeah. So how the schedule goes at the moment. Um, from what we've been given, we get uh two super poles on Friday. Oh, and super pole is our qualifying, and then Saturday we go straight into race one, and Sunday straight into race two. So yeah, it'll definitely be challenging for all the women who haven't raced at these circuits before. But again, that's just something that I've got to have in the back of my mind that that's all that we get um, and nothing can change that. And I can't change the fact that I'm not from Europe. Um, so, you know, not getting, it's important for me to not be get, not get angry at the situation um, to not get frustrated or anything like that with enough, you know, another female comes flying past me because they've ridden here before. Um, I know that I'm not going to be the only female that's in that boat. So, um, you know, again, just making most of the situation um, and, you know, that's the, that's the card I was dealt with being in Australia and, um, you know, it just gives me more determination, I guess, to show you how fast I am. And is there anyone in particular that you want to race against, not just ladies and in this competition, you know, looking ahead? Is there anyone you've got your eye on that you really want to get past? <laughs> I I have always idolised Maria Herrera. Um, she's just someone that I have, yeah, I've always idolised. Um as a racer, as, you know, just a person in general, I've met her when she um, was racing Moto3 in Phillip Island. Um, and, you know, she's just such a, a well-natured girl. You know, I, I really, um, I really admire her and how she's gone about a racing career. Um, again, I haven't seen anything on her social media to see if she's applied for the world championship. I'm not too sure. Um, obviously she's been racing Moto E for a few years now. So, um, yeah, if, if I could have the chance to race against her, that would be absolutely phenomenal. I'm sure I wouldn't be racing against her. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I would just be on the track with her at the same time. Um, but you know, yeah, if, if I could have the chance to race against her, that would be yeah incredible. <laughs> Awesome. Well, let's hope so. Um, it'd be great if that came off on your first <laughs> world championship race. Um, and I'm also interested to know why you have the number 28. So the number 28, there's no, again, yeah, there's no real reason for that. Um, like I said, I didn't, a lot of people have their number because it's what their dad used when they were racing or it's what their grandpa used when they were racing back in the day. Like I said, I had no family history of any motorsport racing whatsoever. So there's no significance behind my number. It was just the number that got, well, the number 285 uh, got just randomly drawn to me um, from Motorcycling Australia when I first applied for my race license when I was six. Um, it was just number 285. And then, yeah, when I switched to road racing, you could only have two-digit number. Um, and I just thought 28 was closer to number one. So I chose 28. <laughs> and it, that's just been... <laughs> number ever since and now it's my identity <laughs> yeah it is yeah that's your handle now yeah. um and do you have any one particular overall ambition I want to at least I want to be on the podium this year and I think that I can I, I really do I really believe that it's so difficult knowing where I would stand against 
the fastest females in Australia, uh, sorry, the fastest females in the world. I need to keep saying that. I'm not racing in Australia. I'm racing in the world. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> there's no idea of knowing where I stand against the fastest women in the world. Um, I'm competitive here in Australia um, against the males. Um, and, you know, I'm the fastest female here in Australia. Um, but, you know, there's only ever been two girls racing in Australia basically at the same time. Um, so, you know, it's, it's so hard to know, but because of how competitive I am here, um, we've had a few of our Supersport 300 riders go overseas and race in the R3, the European R3 Cup. Um, and, you know, they've gotten on the podium over there. And in Australia, I was just as fast as them. So, you know, I know if, if they can get on the podium overseas, you know, if, if men that I race with here in Australia can get on the podium overseas, um, you know, in Europe, then there's nothing stopping me from being able to replicate that, but in a women's championship as well. So, um Either way, I'm going to give it my absolute best crack, um, train my little bum off here in Australia until I go over there. Um, and, yeah, if I can get on the podium, I'll I'll have tears running down my face, I think, for a very long time. <laughs> I reckon so. I, I mean, I, I feel that you can do it. I feel absolutely confident. I think you are so so determined and, and you clearly have the skills. You, it's, it's a natural instinct for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> no you don't need that you can do it <laughs> yeah no but it's literally just my crashes that's what everyone always finds very fascinating about me is to yeah how they actually do that like the one in Darwin where I ran over my neck there's literally a um because you know obviously all of our races in Australia are TV live streamed and yeah I was just a little 15 year old I had the whole bandage was all around my whole entire neck and um obviously I raced the next day and I got on the podium and there's a video on YouTube. It's the funniest thing. Um, and the commentator asked, like, you know, it was you were in hospital less than 12 hours ago and now you're in the podium. You've got third degree to burns on your neck. Like, how did you do it? And I was like, it, my response is, yeah, I couldn't really breathe when I was going down the track. I can't really breathe at all, but I'm on the podium, so who cares? <laughs> and it's, just, it's one of those interviews that I just always look back on and I'm just like, Oh, I just had no thought process just go through my head whatsoever. And even, you know, when that crash did happen, the um the Australian Supercross was on the inside of the circuit. And so all of the motocross riders, like male motocross riders, were all along the fence line where I crashed. And obviously when I race, I have all my hair tucked up in my helmet. So if you don't know what my bike is or who it is riding it, I look just like I'm a male riding. And so all of these like top Australian motocross riders were all along the fence line. Obviously I crashed, tried to pick my bike up, couldn't do it. So I went over to the fence and jumped over the fence. And I didn't know that I had third degree burns on my neck, all that I felt. And it was Darwin, so it was 40 bloody degrees. And so I yelled at one of the supercross riders who had a bottle of water. And I said, give me a bottle of water. I need, you know, I need to put it on my neck. And again, I had my helmet I had all my hair tucked up in my helmet. I still had my visor down, so you couldn't tell that I was a girl. I splashed it on my neck, but as I lifted it up, everyone else could see that I had burns on my neck. And then so they all started yelling at me. I put it, don't put water on third degree burn, let me tell you that. <laughs> anyway, so then they helped me get my helmet off. And as I got my helmet off, all I heard in the background was one of the guys go, holy shit, that's a girl. And then as soon as he said that, oh. as loud as he did, everyone came running over. And I'm like, you should have seen the crowd. 
she's chick just how did she got back up and all this stuff quite funny but but um people who don't know 40 degrees c in in uh in real writing is 104 degrees fahrenheit that is a hot day <laughs> oh the hot day yeah so yeah a lot a lot of my funny stories always come from a crash is because everyone is always just like no nah, she won't get back from this one and and then i do so yeah <laughs> So quite amusing that you do have your hair right tucked up I've seen you you do sort of a ponytail up really high on your head and then put your helmet on does it squash it doesn't it wobble around yeah so in Australia you're not allowed to have any hair visible um I've been protested before by other males um when I was a junior that my hair dangling out of my helmet was would distract them um and yeah in Australia if you have any even a little like wisp of hair like that's hanging out of your helmet uh you get black flagged and disqualified from either your racing qualifying anything like that you just get flat out just disqualified so yeah I put my hair up in a high helmet but then it's funny because when I then do my coaching days where I can have my hair, you know, a little bit of my hair out or wear it differently. My helmet doesn't fit. It's too, it's too big for me because I've actually had to size my helmet differently so that it fits when I have my hair in, um, yeah, how I have to wear it. I always say there's nothing more that I would be annoyed at if, um, yeah, I qualified on pole and then got it taken off me because I had a little bit of whisper of hair sticking out. <laughs> So they must think you're like if they don't know and you haven't got your hair showing. They must think you're quite a small guy because you're what you're you're 156 centimeters. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah, I'm quite small. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why a lot of people that look at me, their last thoughts is that I race motorbikes. Yeah, and then like my email address to everything is always Taylor Ralph Racing, and people look at me and they're like, oh, like you're a jockey, like you're you're a horse racer. And I'm like, nah, nah, motorbike racer. Like, yeah, no one ever suspects it. <laughs> and that's why, you know, that's why I'm really keen to get on the R7 because even the R3, I struggle to touch the ground because of how short I am. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can make some modifications so that I can touch the ground on an R7. And fingers crossed I can. <laughs> even if you can't, Patricia Fernandez, who I'm sure you've heard of, she has to have people just grab the bike when she... Yeah, just grab the bike. Yeah, <laughs> whenever I ride... Um, yeah, anything bigger like a super bike or anything like that. Yeah, my partner always has to be there and grab the bike for me. <laughs> have you ever ridden a, a bike on the road? Have you ever ridden a road bike? Oh, yeah, I've got, we got my road bike license like two years ago, maybe. Holy shit, that's the scariest thing ever. I don't know how people <laughs> ride on the road. Like, number one, there's a speed limit. I can't say I've ever gotten on a motorbike and looked down at the speedo. So really easily you can lose your license. But like, yeah, going around a corner and then there's like buses going past you and trucks going past you. I, nah, I did it for like, I rode on the road for like maybe, oh, maybe only ridden like seven times or something like that. And I'm just like, nah, I'm going <laughs> to my, stick to my cage on my car. It's terrifying. I asked that same question of Barry Sheen many years ago when we were young, and uh, he said the same thing. It frightened the crap out of him, and he'd never do it again. Scary. Yeah, because there's, like, um, number one, if it, like, rains or something like that, and then if there's, like, oil on the road or just, to be honest, just flat-out idiots driving as well, like, yeah, no, not for me. That'll do it. What's the sort of minimum that you can, of sponsorship that you can go with? if somebody offers to support you? Like, yeah, literally anything. Like, you know, we started that GoFundMe page because we just had so many people wanting to, you know, just contribute some form of an amount that they couldn't actually, you know, sponsor us. We've been 
we've been quite lucky with the amount of advertising space that the championship have given us. So a lot of the times when it's like the team side of things, the rider themselves get like tiny little patches on their leathers to promote their own personal sponsors and that's it. But we've been very, very lucky with the actual amount of advertising space that we've been given. There's still not a lot, but it's a lot more than what you traditionally would get given at an actual, you know, if you were riding for a team or anything like that in a world championship. So um, yeah, obviously we've got a sponsorship proposal going around and stuff like that, but you know, to physically either get a logo or a company name or anything like that on the bike, your helmet, my leathers, anything like that, pretty much from anything from five grand up, basically, yeah, able to sort something out. That's good information. I was just thinking anybody with a company who's listening and you're now on stage and up and coming, that's just, a, you know, a great bit of information. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, like I said, we've got to find around 200,000. So, um we're at the moment just saying from five grand, like from 5,000 Australian up, we can probably look at getting your name on the helmet, the bike, the leathers, something like that. But again, I don't know. We're kind of going in blind. So I don't know how many large sponsors we're going to be able to find or if they're all just going to be sort of smaller sponsors at that five to $10,000 mark. Um, I really have no idea, but I'll make it. <laughs> oh, I'm not trying to nail you down it's just interesting to put it out there you know to give oh yeah 100% because sometimes people see that um or they see the they hear the $200,000 figure or something like that and then they're expecting that when I talk about sponsorship that company has to give me that whole $200,000 which it isn't the case we can there's you know I can make anything work and I think that's also where my background in marketing sponsorship um and PR will really help me and I'm going to use all the knowledge that I have to the best of my ability because I know that in the marketing and content creation space I can probably give a sponsor more value for money in the marketing that I can do for their company and content creation for their own digital media platform than a small logo that I can give them on a bike and leave it at that so you know I know that if I do use up all the space on my motorbike helmet leathers whatnot I know that I can then basically sell that exact same advertising in my own content creation and digital marketing plan that I can make for them. So yeah, it's one of those things you got to be, I just have to be smart about how I do it. <laughs> so who's your favorite world superbike rider? World superbike rider. Um, I am a really big fan of Toprak, Raz Gatlioglu. Um, I like Johnny Ray, obviously for his actual, like, you know, for how much he's achieved in world superbikes. Um, but with my role within world superbikes as national press officer, I have to organize a lot of media activations. Um, and top, I really learned the actual comedic side to top rack. Um, you know, the first one of the years we went to Clip and Climb, which um, is like an indoor rock climbing center. And we had a heap of world superbike riders there. We did some little mini races and whatnot. And there was a number, like a timed number on the wall of one of the rock climbing, um, rock climbing ones that you could do. And Top Rack goes to the owner, what's this number for? And he said, that's the record for getting up the wall and touching the buzzer. And he goes, okay, I beat it. And he's like, oh, like that was someone pretty, pretty good at rock climbing that did that. And like Top Rack is a very, very tall person. And um, he just up and down, up and down. And like he got so close every time. And his whole team was like, Top Rack, you're riding tomorrow. Like 
just stop, just stop. Like you're not going to get it, just stop. And he's like, one more, one more. And he'd do one more and then he wouldn't get it. And then he'd go down and then the team would be like, righto, let's go. And then he'd just like look at them and then he'd turn around and he'd quickly try and do it again. And we literally had to like drag him out of the, um yeah, out of the centre. Like he's just, yeah, he he's the the yeah just his sense of humor is hilarious and I've had a fair bit to do with like Garrett Gerloff as well and yeah same thing he just has such a it, it makes makes you realize when you do work with them so closely that you know you idolize them so much but then when you work with them they are just normal human beings um and you know I wish that people got to I guess work as closely with these riders as what I do and realizing you know these guys are just normal like yeah they're absolute freaks on a motorbike but you know you actually have a normal day-to-day conversation with them and they are just they are just normal human beings that you know have and some of them have a really good sense of personality (laughs) yeah and I think you know for us watching the races as lay people as I say it would be really useful if we had a bit more insight into each of the personalities it would really help um you know it just just gives you something to work with something someone to go for yeah exactly yeah yeah I've been very grateful for for that (laughs) Will Mark Marquez win the world championship this year on the Grassini Ducati? According to Sportsbet, yes. <laughs> and you can't argue with Sportsbet. Um, I think he's going to go really, really well on the Ducati, but, you know, he, he's he got a, a big point to prove, I think. Um, I'm surprised that in, in the betting world that there's not more money on Jorge Martin. I was a big um, Martin fan for the world championship in 2023 and I was pretty gutted when he didn't get it um yeah and and Peko did so you know as much as I think Mark Marquez will be up there I think that Jorge Martin could be um yeah could be the the underdog there definitely in his sprint racing ability I think that's definitely one of his um one of his strengths and I think Marquez has a lot to prove and you know, you never know. The pressure might get to him. It's been a while since he had a world championship um on the on the cards for him. So yeah, hopefully. I've got my fingers crossed for Martin. But then, you know, Mark Marquez has Nadia power. I mean, she I met her. She's just a lovely, very strong woman. And, you know, she's got her boys there now. She's gonna just go hell for leather. Yes, yeah, yeah. Don't mess with them. Team <laughs> <Being> Grassini. <laughs> well, you're awesome. It's been fantastic chatting with you. No, thank you so much. Yeah, I know we've spoken for ages about doing this podcast. So, yeah, I'm glad I finally got to go on and talk about something as exciting as this. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I've caught you because you're going to be snapped up. I mean, you're worldwide now. It's going to be huge for you. And I'm really pleased, really chuffed. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the challenge ahead. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to making the absolute most of uh, most of the opportunity that's been given to me. Like I said, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Only 22 women across the whole entire world are right now in the position that I'm in, um, you know, trying to get over there. And, you know, I'm sure they're all just as determined and passionate about motorsport as I am. Um, and, you know, I know it's going to be extremely challenging. I know that there are some bloody fast females around the world. Um, and, you know, it's something that I'm so excited to, you know, take that challenge on by both hands. I've never been beaten by a girl before. So I need to sort of swallow my pride and realize that's going to happen this year. Um, Cause I don't take it very well when I do get, um, you know, in a practice session or whatever, if, if a female does beat me, I don't really like it. Um, and I'm going to have to suck that up a little bit, but because <laughs> it's definitely going to happen this year. Um, but yeah, I'm just so excited to just be surrounded by 
like-minded women um, who are all just as fast as one another. And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. It is, it is. You've really got to be in your bonnet. I don't think anyone's going to overtake you. <laughs> we'll be watching. <laughs>